good stuff like that. I'll ask Tiffany today for an update on the uh, the pre-orders on the mugs. I think they should be here soon and be shipping out soon. I'll find out for you, let you guys know on Monday about that. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. I keep adding more and more stuff. I just added the book from BioBees.com. Really cool ebook on building and uh, maintaining and designing top bar beehives. Lots of discounts, lots of great stuff. We'll leave it there. So that's really the end of the housekeeping. But there's some more stuff that I got to tell you guys about um, today that is really not housekeeping, but it's before we take your call. So we're we're into the meat of the show now. Uh, one is High Mowing Organic Seeds, who is not a sponsor because honestly, I think they want to be. I just don't have a space available right now for them. Uh, is supporting the MSB, and they give you guys a discount. And even if you're not in the MSB, I might tell you guys, I've told you guys for years that this is a place that I buy seeds from. I love doing business with them. They have an amazing selection of not just seeds, but, you know, organic fertilizer, organic pest control, you name it. I'm going to have um, one of the owners on for an interview, hopefully next week. If not next week, it'll have to be the, the week after next because we've got the fourth coming up and all. Um, but I'm going to try to get them on. But they also said they wanted to do more to support the show. So they've donated some seed packs. I'll be doing a YouTube video on these. And this is pretty awesome. Uh, one is an Heirloom Vegetable Lovers. And uh, it's got beets and breakfast radishes and Russian kale and green arrow shell peas, ruby chard, yellow crookneck squash, uh, romaine lettuce, boothby blonde cucumber, brandywine tomato, and red cord chutney carrots. And then there's a kitchen herbs packet, which has basil, dill, thyme, cilantro, and moss curled parsley. So they're going to be giving those away to you guys. I'm just not sure of the quantity, how many people are going to get one yet in a new listener appreciation contest and a video is coming on that. On YouTube, I want everybody to I, I even posted this on the site yesterday uh, after I made sure that Dave Canterbury's interview was out long enough that the two didn't overlap too much. Uh, I just did a really badass series. I think it came out great. I think it would have been better if I had a camera person with me. It was hard to do alone. But on survival fishing, using flowers as bait, starting out with flowers and working your way up the food chain. I did that in a little uh, little pond, cre- little creek, uh, just a few miles from my house. That's very much like a creek you would find anywhere throughout the southeast uh, into the southwestern United States. So uh, check that video out. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a four-part series. And I went out there and I sweat and got covered in hitchhiker stuff and mud and fish tank just so I could do this for you guys. It was something we used to do when I was a kid and uh, show you how to make a jug line, show you how to make a uh, cane pole. Very minimalist kid I walked in with. Nothing but a knife, some paracord, a, a small spool of monofilament, and some snell hooks. That was all I took with me. No bait. Started out with a flower, worked up from there. So check that out. Um, I also want to talk to you about something totally different. And this really is listener feedback. It's just an email versus a call. I got an email today, and it's really not this person. So if you're listening, don't be upset, because I get lots of emails like you sent me, and I get lots of completely different emails uh, that ask for the exact opposite of what you asked for. I got an email from a guy today, and basically it said, I don't like when you rant. When you ranted recently about the kid with the hat, and you yell, and I could get that from blowhards on, on AM radio. And then I get people, and you'll even hear somebody today, basically begging for a rant. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up isn't to tell either side you're right or you're wrong. It's for you guys, because it's not really pushback. I don't want you to see it that way. I want you to understand. I talked a lot recently about building your own business, uh, creating your own personal brand, and what I said in all of those things was you have to be authentic and you have to be yourself. 
I'm not ranting right now because there's nothing in me to rant right now. When I talked about the kid with the hat, I got really freaking mad, and I ranted because that's who I am. And if I listen to everybody that said, don't do this, or please do that, and don't do this, and don't do that, do you know how much survival podcast there would be? Absolutely freaking nothing. Because I could never please everybody, so I have to just be myself and let that attract the audience that feels in common with me more often than not. And since it's a podcast, you have this thing called the fast-forward button. So if there's ever a segment you're not interested, especially a show like today with all these different subjects, fast forward. You won't hurt my feelings, I won't even know. But I have to be me and I have to be authentic. That's not really explaining my position. That's telling you, please do the same. When you start building a brand in a business, it's a podcast, a blog, anything, you're going to hear from all kinds of people that think they know better than you, telling you what you're doing wrong, what you should do. And I'm not talking about suggestions. I'm talking about you really shouldn't do this, or I wish you would do more of that. And if it's positive feedback and you can integrate it, do it, because give your audience what it wants. But on the other hand, if it violates your core, your authenticity, right? Because I can't talk about an ignorant asshole like those people from that school district without being pissed off. If I do it, I'm faking it. I don't fake it with you guys. I'm authentic with you guys. I just wanted to throw out that today. For all of you guys that are out there trying to build something of your own, never lose your authenticity. If you want to lose your authenticity, go get a freaking job in corporate America, be a good little drone in your cubicle, and be fake and bullshit and plastic all day long, and talk to people you hate like you like them, and be nice to people you can't despise, and go have lunches with people you really wouldn't want anything to do with outside of business. Go do that. If you want to be an entrepreneur, screw that. You become an entrepreneur so you can be yourself. Now, if you want to build a Fortune 500 company, you're probably going to have to go into the world of plastic. But if you want to build something that will sustain you and your family, there's no reason to compromise who you are. In fact, I would tell you it will be harder to do if you compromise who you are. So with that, let's go ahead and take the first question. And again, I know this intro segment was long, but it really was an intro segment. Uh, we've been into the show for about six minutes here. Hi, Jack. I'd like some ideas about how to monitor my bug-out location uh, that has internet access, uh, since it is far away, I can't visit it often, uh, be able to maybe put a webcam and face it in a certain direction so I can at least check contents. Uh, and I appreciate your show and everything you do for us out here in the field. Bye. Well, I mean, since you have internet access, you have an advantage that I don't, and I would definitely do something like that with my bug allocation instead of just relying on the kindness of my uh, my neighbor up there who I uh, have keep an eye on my place. Um, there is a product that I think is an excellent product for doing this. Uh, it's very affordable, and it'll run up to four cameras, and uh, it's called Visec, V-I-S-E-C. It's a security software. Uh, you can run just about any type of camera with it, so it gives you a lot of flexibility with that. And again, a $99 um, uh, piece of the software will run up to four cameras. Now, that means you're going to have to have a computer uh, with Internet connectivity running continuously uh, at your remote location. And what you may want to do with that is, um, and I'm not sure exactly how to do this, but I know it can be done, basically set the computer to do uh, restarts, let's say, every night at 3 a.m. and reboot everything. 
Uh, because if you have a computer running, if you're gone for three or four months, you can run into issues with the computer running that long without a reboot, maybe a weekly reboot. You're also going to want to make sure that you, compu- you don't have any of your settings set for the computer to go to sleep on you. Uh, I've made that mistake with rendering big video where it's going to take like four hours for the video to render, and I go off and leave, and I forgot I had like Hibernate set, and I come back, and I'm like, damn, right? So you want to make sure you don't have anything set like that. Uh, but I think it's a great idea. And I think that one of the other things you probably want to consider uh, is possibly getting an alarm system. Uh, that would be very inexpensive uh, insurance to make sure that at least if somebody does break in, you know about it. Now, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to tell you that camera systems can be fooled, they can be tricked, they can be, you know what, uh, you can do, you can, locking your car... Uh, a good car thief cares not that you lock your car, but you still do it. I think a camera system is a great idea, and I think having it live monitoring and being able to tie into that feed is a great idea. And with this system, I believe you can also set it to do uh, a certain amount of record buffering. So if you happen to notice something, you can uh, save that file. Uh, so I'm going to recommend Visec for that, and I'm going to give you a link in today's show notes uh, where you can learn more about Visec and it is a product that I've worked with before. I've set a couple people up with it back in the days when I was still kind of in technology and consulting in technology, and it's always worked very well, and you're going to get really good support from them. So uh, check out Visec, and uh, let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Jack, Travis here. Just got my wife and I uh, a Marlin 22, brand new, from local gun shop, and just wondering if I should... Fill out the warranty card, send that in. Or is this something that's really not that necessary that they'll cover it anyway? If anything happens to it that's based on a defect. Have other guns and never filled out the warranty card, never thought it was necessary. Just curious. Thanks. Great show. Bye. I mean, I don't know. My question is why wouldn't you? Are you afraid of having yet another piece of paper that says that you purchased a firearm? Uh, when you purchased a firearm, you filled out a form, and uh, that's retained by the seller, and, and that exists. Um, I don't think Marlin's going to be giving your information to the federal government or anything, so if you're worried about security, I, I don't think there's really, you know, there's a paper trail already is what I'm saying. And I don't think this really enhances the paper trail. Um, will Marlin work on your gun without a warranty registration? Uh, in my experience, yes, because I have a 30-year-old 22 that I recently had some work done that they did for nothing, even though I think I should have paid for it. They still they just basically said, pay the shipping and we'll take care of it for you. So they're a great company, and uh, that's why they have such fierce loyalty. The main reason I've ever not filled out any kind of a warranty card on something is because I don't want the company having more communication with me through, like, spam emails and things like that. My personal feeling with Marlin, Remington, Winchester, Federal, all of the firearms and ammunition manufacturers, send me anything you want. I'd love to see what you have to tell me. I want information from them. So I don't have that concern. So whereas if I buy something from Acer, and it's got like a one-year warranty that it came with, and they have a warranty card. I'm probably not going to fill that out because I'm just going to get a bunch of what I'm going to feel like is spam. It's not really spam because I've given them my permission by giving them my information, but I don't want it. So with with guns, I've always filled out my warranty card. And again, if you're concerned with a uh, the governmental issue, another piece of paper trail tracking you back to a gun, 
Um, the only way to avoid that anyway is to do something maybe through a private seller or something like that. And if I if I went out and purchased a, a weapon, let's say at a gun show from a private seller where there is no paperwork, uh, I probably wouldn't warranty that even if it was uh, new enough, came in the box with the warranty card, just because there is no trail to that, so why create one? So I think you're in two different worlds. I don't think it's that critical of an issue. I don't think it's that big a deal. But I played the question because I think a lot of people probably buy new guns and look at that warranty card and go, should I do this or not? Um, personally, I think it gives you uh, more credibility with the manufacturer should there ever be a defect that needs to be worked on. And I think that they're going to be a hell of a lot more likely, especially with warranty issues that are time-based. There's some people that have a lifetime warranty. And if they have a lifetime warranty, it doesn't really matter, does it? But if they have a two-year warranty, um, if you send that warranty card and you have a start point, which means that there's no argument about the end point, I guess that could work to your disadvantage, too, if you're dishonest. But to me, it's it's uh, I, I don't do business with a company that I won't trust when it comes to firearms. So I trust them with my warranty card. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Archer. This thing's your show, too, uh, 458. You're talking about how to tie a couple of sticks together. Uh, I have a book next to me. It's called The Everyday Knots, The Book of Everyday Knots. And the knot you want to use to tie two sticks together is called the transom knot. T-R-A-N-S-O-M, transom knot. And that is used for tying uh, two sticks together. Take a look at it. The book I'm looking at is called Everyday Knots uh, by Jeffrey Budworth. B-U-D-W-O-R-T-H. Uh, I'd like to some notes, but uh, I'm not going to be in our computer for a couple of days. I'll probably forget about it. So have a good weekend, Jack. Bye. Well, there you go, folks. That's the community at work. One person asks a question, I give an answer, and a listener gives an even better answer, Transom Knot. Um, as soon as I had that knot down, I went to YouTube and searched for Transom Knot and found out that my buddy Brian, who's up in Missouri taking a class he's finishing up today, um, has not done a video on transom knots. I'm sure he'll do one now because it's another great idea for another knot of the week. But there are plenty of videos out there on transom knots. I found a great one, and I will put a link in today's show notes. I think the book by Archer is maybe something we should consider adding to our survival library here at the house, so I'm going to consider checking that out. I'll put a link to that if I can find it on Amazon.com for you. Uh, but I, I mainly played this one, not for my commentary, but just because, hey, here, Archer looked it up. One thing about Archer's cell phone, I boosted the audio there. Archer, you're kind of quiet on your cell phone. You need to talk louder, and, and you probably have the worst connection of anybody that calls in. So I don't know what cell carrier you're using, but I'm not real impressed with them. But anyway, thanks for that, Archer. Now, before I take the next question, I realized I skipped something. Uh, Soccer Granny sent an email in to me this morning, and, <clears throat> you know, we had Dave Canterbury on yesterday with dual survival and um, what she wanted to let everybody know is that tonight beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern Time uh, which of course is 7 Central uh, Discovery is airing the first three episodes so episode three is new out this week but they're airing one, two, and three back to back uh, tonight, again on Discovery Channel I also had people asking after that episode yesterday is it available online? Hulu.com, folks, H-U-L-U.com. You'll find a tremendous amount of TV shows and things like that available on Hulu for free for those of you that don't have cable. In fact, I think Hulu is rapidly killing 
cable and dish and things like that. Hulu and other things like Boxy. Check out Boxy. You'll be impressed with what that is. That's why I said in a recent show, television's going to die just like the resume is going to die. One day your TV is going to be nothing but a giant computer monitor. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Again, thanks, Archer, for that tip. I appreciate you, man. And uh, here we go with your next question. Hi, this is Lori Long. Um, I'm known as the box lady. I have a publication, My Life in a Box, and I'm basically try to kickstart people into getting started on preparedness issues. Really enjoy your podcast, and today you talked about Aesop's fables and the ant and the uh, grasshopper. Cool analogy. Uh, I was at a CERT training this week and found out something new about using your water heater for water to flush your toilet. If you are in a town where the sewer is used, uses power, electricity, um, like we are in good old Fresno, um, you flush your toilet a few times, and within 45 minutes, if your neighbors do the same thing, your sewage is going to come backing up through the streets. That was new news to me. So if people live in an environment where they have a city sewer, they need to find out if that city sewer is run by electricity, because if the power goes off, then you're going to have waste all over the place. Anyway, love your stuff, uh, enjoy your podcasts, and check out mylifeinabox.com. Thanks. Bye. Well, I'll have to do that. I'll have some time today if I can find a free moment, because i got Mike Gazer set up for an interview right after this show is finished recording and, and goes out live to you guys. Uh, and his show will be airing next week, by the way, but I'll try to check that out over the weekend, mylifeinabox.com. Um, on the sewer thing, that's interesting, and it's something I hadn't thought of. I know that for, let's say, the the majority of the way the sewer flows in Dallas-Fort Worth, that is not the case because way, way back during my underground days, we did some work with the sewer people, and we know there was a one-degree pitch everywhere in all the sewer lines for free-running uh, sewers to be gravity-fed. That said, I guess in any place, eventually you get to a point where it's got to go uphill at some point. So I think it's a matter of how much electricity. I can't see that there's many places where a sewer system is 100% gravity. I, eventually you get to a treatment plant or whatever and requires electricity uh, and things like that. But what it sounds to me like is that in Fresno, you've got a lot of pumps along the way. So I think it depends on it's a capacity issue at that point. How much is being gravity-fed before you get to an electric pump? Once you get to that electric pump back, how much capacity is there? And how many people are flushing those toilets before you start having the sewers backing up? Really awful to think about, but I guess you do need to check into that. What percentage of your sewer in your city is run by electricity? And how long would you be able to rely during a power grid failure um, on things like flushing the toilet with pool water. By the way, I never suggested you flush your toilet with water from your hot water heater. That's good potable water for drinking. So if you're in a situation without water, I would reserve that water for drinking. Um, and you might use other water, again, pool water or water that you can acquire from any other means. But yet, to me, this is another reason to think about building your place off-grid and having a septic system. 
so that you don't care whether or not your city has electric sewer. Uh, this sounds like a bad idea with bad written all over it. I also would bet, due to the fact that blackouts are common, uh, being without power for a day in an area is common, uh, from electrical storms, simple failures, uh, what they call backhoe fade, which means some guy in a machine dug up the power line, uh, auto accidents to take down a pole, hailstorms, and, you know, obviously, uh, ice storms not in Fresno, but ice storms in different parts of the country and the world, that most of these sewer systems probably have backup power. So they probably have a period of time that they can remain operational. I'm sure it's not measured in weeks, though. So good call, good input. Thank you for that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Yes, this is Michael from Northwest Arkansas. And I had a question for you, Jack. We have a fly-in community out here on the lake. And I was wondering what you think about uh, one of these uh, fly-in vacation lake communities for a bug-out location slash uh, lake house, you know, for time, if times don't get bad. Anyways, I appreciate you taking the question. Thanks. Well, I certainly think on some ways it's ideal, and on some ways it's not so ideal. I think that what we have to realize whenever we analyze anything, that we always live in a world of what we consider checks and balances, or positives and negatives, plus and minuses, yin and yang, however you want to define it. And what you're describing, of course, has a remote advantage. In other words, since you're, you have to fly in to get there, uh, you can't drive in. That is a huge advantage because uh, you're obviously not. If a shit hit the fan scenario, you're not going to have a whole lot of people wandering by. Now, it's very unlikely that there's any place uh, in the world other than an island that people can't get to on foot or with a motorcycle or, or something like that. So, is it completely isolated? No. And I imagine that when it was built. There's probably some way that things are brought in other than airplanes, because that would get very, very expensive, and it may, in fact, be by boat. So my next question is, how big is a lake? Uh, you're in northwest Arkansas. I'm not sure what lake that would be, uh, but if it's on a lake like, uh, what's that one big, Bull Shoals, for instance, well... There'd be a lot of access to your community by anybody with a boat. If it was down my way on Lake Washita, same thing. You might have a place where you can't get in with a road, but anybody with a boat could get access. So that may be a weakness, but obviously it's a definitely, you know, a moat can be crossed, but, you know, a lot of people can't cross the moat. So you do drop the number down. So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that there's still that weakness, so it has to be thought of from a security standpoint when things got really bad because the other side of it is you can't get a lot of help from reinforcements or resupply. So my view with something like this is, for me, it could be absolute heaven. Because I would be surrounded by people that are like me that wanted to live that way. Uh, and you're not going to have a lot of ass clowns rolling through, making noise and causing trouble. So uh, whether good time or bad, I think it could be a great thing. That said, you're going to have to stalk the hell out of it. Because in a bad situation that's not gone off the edge of the earth, where maybe you just kind of have to sit tight, but if you were somewhere where you could drive, you could still resupply. So you've got kind of like that middle ground between the end of the earth and uh, something that's a more typical uh, uh, breakdown, regional in nature or what have you. Uh, so 
that's a weakness. The other weakness is, let's say you have a major storm that damages aircraft, and you guys are stuck, and all oh, the city's got problems and all, but responders are there, help is there, uh, you're not without support. It's not a major disaster, it's a, a major regional disaster. Again, you're going to be one of the last people to get help. If it's simply power failure, and I'm the electric company, and I got all these people in this little fly-in location out here, and uh, they're going to come last on my list. I'm going to fix the 20,000 townspeople's power first, uh, unless it just happens that the problem is common. But usually when there's a grid problem, you have to kind of fix it in pieces and segments. You're going to pri- And I get that where I'm at. I'm remote. I'm at the end of the line. There's only four people past me. They're a lot less worried about our five households than the you know 20,000 people surrounding greater hot springs when the power's out. So these are all checks and balances. But the big thing is being fully prepped. Um, I think you should make sure you have a damn good garden spot uh, established, perennial fruits and uh, things like that that will just grow, uh, you know, even when you, you're not taking care of them every year, and make sure you have a damn deep pantry. And make sure you have a lot of fuel stored. Because that airplane, you can't push it. You can't push it, and I don't know of any solar-powered airplanes, folks, so... Uh, you know, you could probably even convert a lot of cars by stripping down their weight to nothing, a couple solar panels and some batteries, and at least go somewhere with it. Um, airplane, you're stuck. So the other thing is, since it's on a lake, if there is lake access, not just fly access, a boat is a great idea because you can make a boat, and even though it takes a long time to do, you can make a boat run on pure electricity. It's called a trolling motor. doesn't even have to be complicated. By the way, Briggs and Stratton, for those of you on lakes that want, like, a, a heavy-powered uh, electric small boat makes a three-horsepower electric outboard, and it is a pretty badass little motor. Again, Briggs & Stratton makes it three-horsepower electric, so you guys might want to check that out as well. But I like the idea. Just understand its limitations. For when times are good, you know, like now, and I'm not saying good like the economy's roaring, but, you know, there's no mutant zombie bikers out there trying to steal your potatoes or anything, what a great place. I mean, if you have the finances for it and you're a pilot or you have a pilot in a family or you, you know, you charter planes for stuff like this, what a great thing. What a great thing. And I think it definitely has some advantages for a prepper type community if you wanted to make the whole community somewhat centered around prepping. All right, let's go ahead and take another question. That's a great one, man. Thanks for that. Hi, Jack. This is Steve in Arkansas. I have an opportunity to pick up a IMI Jericho 951. Um, it's an Israeli Israeli made handgun, 40 caliber. I was wondering if you've heard anything about it, whether they're good guns or not. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Well, uh, good question. It's it's a it's a gun I've actually only ever picked up and fired once, but I liked it and I liked it a lot. I think you actually mean an IMI Jericho 941, not 951. I don't think there is a 951 version of that gun. I think they're all 941s. What can I tell you about it? It's the official uh, sidearm carried by the Israeli uh, security uh, forces. So they don't carry junk, and they don't. And Israel doesn't build uh, poor quality uh, weapons. They. Uh, are a nation that's been at war almost since they were founded, so when they build a weapon and they issue it to their troops, it's quality. You can think whatever you want about Israel's politics. When it comes to building weapons, they're good at what they do. Uh, I believe some people refer to this thing as like a baby desert eagle. 
Uh, I can tell you that it feels good in the hand. It points well. The one that I fired functioned flawlessly. I'm not in love with the 40 Smith and Wesson as a round. I'm really not. I don't have anything against it. Uh, good ammunition. It, it works well. It's it's affordable. Uh, but that weapon is made in a nine uh, nine millimeter, and it's also made in a 45 ACP. I'd probably go to one side or the other. I think that the nine millimeter is easier to control with follow up shots and shoot. Has less recoil and is you know I don't see that much of a stopping power advantage to the 40 Smith. If you want a bigger stopping power advantage and you, you'll take heavier recoil and things like that, um, I say step up to a 45. I carry a 1911 as my primary carry weapon. Uh, I know it's heavier and bulkier than, than a lot of people like to carry, but I'm a big believer in the 45 and the 1911 platform, which is why I carry it. Uh, what I would love to see this weapon built in, I mean, absolutely love to see it, is 10 millimeter. I think this would be a good semi automatic hunting firearm. Uh, for game like deer uh, and, and that size game in 10 millimeter, uh, with 10 millimeter, of course, is kind of a uh, 40 Smith on steroids. It was the original uh, 40 caliber when the FBI uh, was looking for a new round. Uh, they came out with a 10 millimeter, and because the FBI apparently uh, hires some pretty limp-wristed individuals that can't shoot worth a damn, they couldn't handle the recoil. And, and folks, if you've ever shot a 10 millimeter, I don't find the recoil to be that much of a challenge. Uh, if you're going to have, I don't know how you're going to be able to uh, follow up effectively with a 40 if you can't do it with a 10. I, I just don't notice that big of a difference. And I guess some people would say, Jack, well, I don't notice that much of a difference between the 40 and the 9. I guess everything's relative and personal with firearms. So I'm just giving you my opinion here. Uh, this is not, you know, fact day uh, on it when we talk about guns. The guns are always going to be uh, a lot of opinion. I'm just not in love with the 40, folks. I'll just leave it at that. So I would pick it up in 9mm or 45, either one of those, before the 40. But 40's not about, you know, 40 will do. People get hit with a 40, they go down too. So I don't want to put the round down. Uh, the gun itself, beautiful platform. Flawless functioning. Uh, absolutely love the way that it, it, it fires, uh, the control that it gives you, uh, follow-up capability, and the instinctual way that it points. As a 1911 shooter, I found it not the same. It doesn't have that glove-like fit because I've been shooting the damn things for 25 years. But it, it was very familiar to me in feel and point, and the one I did shoot was a 9mm version, uh, and I really, really liked it. So I say, uh, if you get an opportunity to pick one of these up at a good, fair price, and you like the round that it's in, uh, you can't go wrong with it. Great gun. Uh, let's take another one of your questions. Good morning, Jack. This is David in Mesa, Arizona. I've got two questions about growing corn for you. Um, we've got our first crop of heirloom variety corn grown in the backyard. Got beautiful ears of corn, beautiful stalks, 10 feet tall. And I've got a problem with the worms eating a quarter of my corn crop. I was wondering if there's any way I can control those worms without spraying poison all over my corn. And the second part of my question was, what do I need to do to dry out the corn cobs and get the seeds off of them to plant for next year? Thanks for all you do, and we'll talk to you later. 
Well, that's a good question. If you watch my YouTube video, Success and Failure with uh, Heirloom Sweet Corn, uh, you will uh, see that I had a similar problem with caterpillars this year. I had some other problems based on a, a, a type of heirloom that I tried to grow that was just tough to grow in a small plot. Uh, but I got some nice corn out of it. I also had a lot of caterpillars uh, tearing up the corn the way that you're talking about. And I always try to do things without any control first. And I've determined I can't pull it off with corn. That The corn worms will eat my corn if I allow it to happen. And so for the corn, I bring in a product called Green Step that I get from a company called Gardens Alive. Who, By the way, I need to get in touch with those guys again. I've been trying to work a discount deal and maybe get an interview with them set up for you guys to learn more about organic pest control because I really like their products. Again, a company called Gardens Alive, and the product they use is Green Step Caterpillar Control. And it's just basically uh, a solution of uh, BT, uh, which is a bacteria called, and if I, if I get the pronunciation wrong, one of you Latin scholars can correct me, Bacillus uh, Genesis. Uh, through Genesis or through Ingenesis or through through Ingenesis or something like that, okay? Uh, but BT. Now, you might think I would hate BT because Monsanto does things like grows BT corn. Well, that's corn that's been genetically modified to produce BT inside the corn. This I have a problem with. Uh, but BT itself is naturally occurring and, and, and safe and doesn't affect human beings. So by mixing this uh, concentrated solution and spraying your corn, uh, you'll control your caterpillars. Now here's the good news. You don't have to spray your corn. And when I say that, I mean head to tail, top to bottom, the way that the bottle says. What I've done, and that's worked beautifully for me, is I mix up a, a small amount of it. And I mean, you buy one bottle of stuff, it'll last you for seasons and seasons and seasons. Uh, I guess you probably have an expiration date. I need to check on that. But I can't see using up a bottle of this in five years, honestly, as long as it continues to work and function. And all you do is right about the time that the cobs are starting to form and the silk's just starting to form, spray the tips of the cobs. So you get your I have like a little uh, half-gallon sprayer. You pump up spray, hand sprayer. I'll mix up a quarter of that. Uh, so it's, it's less than a teaspoon to the water. And I actually put like one or two drops of, of uh, canola oil in there as well, which is another uh, organic means of control of these little bastards. And I hate them. They are bastards, these cornworms. Uh, they just tear up your, your ears. If you look at my video again, you'll see why I hate these things so much. And uh, you spray just basically the tips of the cobs with that. And what Bacillus uh, through Genesis does is if that worm eats one tiny morsel uh, of that bacteria, it gets sick, it stops eating, and it soon dies. So it's a great organic control. Again, I don't like to just spray everything with it. There's people that cover their tomatoes with it. They cover their cabbage with it. I try to use it only in spot applications where it's necessary, where it's evident that control is, is needed. And in the case of corn, I found it needed. Uh, I'm not going to probably do it this year because it's too hot now, and I don't think I have enough time left to do it. But Marjorie from Backyard Food Production sent me some Indian red corn and some Indian blue corn uh, that are southwestern uh, heirlooms that are old, ancient corns. I'm going to try growing those in my next growing season. And from what she's told me, they require a lot less fertilization, and they require a lot less water than sweet corns. You don't get that great sweet corn eat off the cob, but you can make some awesome cornmeal and mess of flour. Uh, so I think I'm going to shift my corn growing that way in the future 
uh, at least until I get enough space uh, cultivated in Arkansas to put in a, a larger uh, pasture, so to speak, of corn. Corn, I think, does better when it's grown in much larger uh, volume. So there you go. Don't be afraid to use some organic controls. Just use them only as needed. And again, guys, I'll be hitting Gardens Alive up again about a discount for the Members Brigade and trying to get an expert on from there to talk to you guys more about things like this type of organic control. All right, let's take another question. Hey, Jack. I uh, love the podcast. Got a uh, little garden going on the side of the house uh, since listening. Uh, my question is about the job economy now. So if I was to move around or my company were to move me um, and I could possibly be out of the state that I'm in and I'm trying to buy a piece of urban land that's within two to four hours, you know, what do you do? Because if they end up moving you, you may not get to your property, but maybe once or twice a year if they end up putting you at the other side of the country. So just wanted to see what your opinion was on that and maybe just having a travel, travel trailer like we have is, is what we should stick with. All right, thanks, bye. Well, let's look at it this way. Um, if you buy a house and your company moves you, you have to sell your house and then you buy another house, right? So if you bought a piece of land and your company moved you and you didn't want that piece of land anymore because you'd moved so far away from it, then you would have to sell your piece of land. So I'm not I'm not um, trying to uh, mitigate the situation to a point of no consequence because there's certainly a consequence. And if you know every situation in every person's life is different, so if you work in a job where you're highly likely to be moved, and maybe it's a regular occurrence that you end up moving every five years, and you know that then you may not want to buy that piece of bug-out property unless you want to eventually stop working and live there or change your career and live there, work part-time and live there permanently. So if it's, it's depending on whether it's always going to be bug-out land or is it a, a long-term piece of dream property that you're eventually going to move to and stay there forever. If that's the case, there's no better time to buy than now because land's not going to get a lot cheaper. Um, I don't care how bad the economy gets. Uh, there are opportune buying times, like right now, by the way, uh, where things happen with the economy. But sooner or later, inflation kicks in, and when that happens, the prices of goods go up because the value of money goes down, and you're going to see land prices increase. In the future, as we burden our cities heavier, as sub the suburbs become less desirable, you're going to see land in these remote areas become more and more expensive as well. So I think this is a good time now <clears throat> to lock in on that permanent purchase. If you're going to be, if you don't know if you're going to move and you just want a piece of bug out property, then maybe you pick up a couple acres or so and you buy smart. You make sure you buy land that if you had to sell it, you could. Or possibly, uh, if you're doing it right and you're just, let's say you have this travel trailer you're talking about, instead of buying a bug out place like I have with a house and everything, maybe it's just a piece of land. And then if you move, maybe you just retain that piece of land as part of your investments. Because again, since I think the value of land is going to continue to increase, I think you've got a solid investment. So you have to justify this against your own life. If I was, let's say, in a job where I knew every three years they're going to pick me up and move me, I probably wouldn't buy, uh, I definitely wouldn't buy a place like I have in Arkansas right now. A house and all that stuff where I want to get there once a month or so. Um, I probably wouldn't even buy a little plot of land nearby a couple hours away. 
I might try to play the odds. If I knew that my company uh, had offices in L.A. and New York, I might look for something in the middle of the country, but that's a bit of a stretch. But if I had a company with offices, let's say, in Charlotte, uh, uh, South Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in, in kind of that area there, then I might look for something in rural West Virginia. Because even if I get moved, it's still got a reasonable proximity. Again, everything's different. If I got, you know, I might be moving from New York to LA, that's tough. And I understand that type of, uh, of lifestyle. Uh, it's not for me. And I know sometimes you do what you got to do. So maybe it's not even not for you, but you got to do it. But it's up to you. But these are just the way I look at it. And again, I look at it like this. If it's a reasonable stability, if it's just a possibility that you're going to move, uh, it, to me, it's just like any other purchase of property. When you move, you would then put it on the market, sell it, and use the, the, the hopefully the profit to purchase new property. So it's up to you how you work that out. That's the best I can do in helping you sort through it. Let's take another question. Morning, Jack. My name is Aaron. I'm calling from Minnesota. I was thinking this morning that uh, most modern survivalists are prepared to live physically through disasters and storms, but I'm not sure if we're all spiritually prepared to carry on our spiritual heritage. And I'm wondering, what are the most time-tested methods of preserving, of preserving spiritual heritage uh, through the storm? Thanks. It's an interesting question. First, let me say that I generally don't, and I will not today, bring personal religion to the Survival Podcast. I believe that religion is something that we enter by choice, and our faith is our business, and if our faith involves sharing it, there are places to do that, uh, and there are ways to do that, and I don't fault anybody that would maybe have a podcast about sharing their faith, but that's not what this show's about. So, um, as far as like any kind of proselytization, you won't get that here. And you won't even get a really in-depth ever explanation of what my faith is. If you want to know uh, what I believe, you might want to check out books by people like James Redfield, Richard Bach, and Neil Donald Walsh to get an idea of my spirituality. Uh, but it's far different than I think many people would believe it to be. That said, uh, preserving our spiritual heritage is not something that I really worry much about because if you look at any of the things that can go wrong and then you take a step back and realize how minor those would be in comparison uh, as society uh, as a whole, then what every major faith has been through. I don't care if you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, any other faith that's out there, uh, native shaman faiths, uh, all of these things have persevered. All of these things are still here. All of these things are still with us because they live in the human soul. And that's the reality that I see there. Now, if you're a Christian having a Bible, if you're a Muslim having a Koran, uh, and maybe having more than one copy and making that part of your library, great idea. Having electronic versions, great idea. Uh, if your faith is of, of some other heritage that uh, is maybe not as well documented and you'd like to preserve that for your family to know what their roots are in, then having any type of text or uh, physical thing that, that would help do that I think is a great idea to make part of the stuff you put aside to make sure that it's preserved. But the best and most time-proven methods of keeping spiritual heritage alive is word of mouth. 
It's people telling each other. It's people teaching each other. My my view on spirituality for for uh, dealing with shit at the fan scenarios is this, and it's the same thing I tell you about politics, and it's the same thing I tell you about life. Know why you believe what you believe. If you know why you believe what you believe, it's not easy to change that because of circumstance. And you'll ground yourself in some faith. And even though, like I said, I will not ever proselyze with the Survival Podcast, um, I have a real sympathy in my heart for atheists. Um, I don't feel as bad for agnostics, because at least they're open to the possibility. An agnostic is someone that questions the existence of God, and if that's you, fine, question all you like. Maybe it'll lead you to some form of spirituality eventually. The atheist that believes there's nothing, that we die and we're gone and we're just dust, um, to me, life is absurd that way. It, it really is. If there's nothing else, exactly what else there is, everybody can debate and fight about that all they want. I'm going to stay out of the argument. I know why I believe what I believe. And I think that most people that are happy with their faith, that aren't miserable, are the same way. Whatever their faith may be, they know why they believe what they believe, and they ground it and they make it fit their life. And they live their life based on some level of, of faith. And again, you make that word mean whatever you want it to mean. I'm as non-committed on this one as I can be and even talk about it. But if you're worried about preserving it, know it, believe it, teach it to your family. And even if you have a son or a daughter that eventually decides that they're going to take another path, I hate to say this because I know some of you it's going to be a terrible thing. You have to be at peace with it. You have to accept the fact that that person is going to follow their path, whatever was laid out in front of them. It doesn't hurt them to know where they came from, though. So make sure that your children know the heritage that your family has and talk about it and teach it and make it part of who and what you are. Make it part of your family and follow it and practice it. And practice it not just by going to temple or going to church or, 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 or by praying or by meditation or by reading or whatever uh, there is in practicing it. Practicing it, practice your faith, your spirituality, even if it's tailor custom individual spirituality, by making a part of what you do in your life. I do it a lot of times simply through gratitude, as I recently told you guys when I do this show. It's always done in a reflection of gratitude. That's part of my understanding of how the universe works, how God works, and how spirit works. And that's as much as I can do, and probably the most I will ever do on this topic on this show, because my show is designed for you to have your own plan. And if you're going to have your own plan, I can't go around telling you how to follow religion and spirituality. All I can tell you is maybe the mile-high view that I've just given you. Good question. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Palm Bay Lou from Florida. i got a question for you. Your opinion, your outlook about reverse mortgage. I'm not interested in reverse mortgage. My mother has gone through reverse mortgage because she had to of limited, she's on limited income. Uh, but as a survival situation, we might have some parents out there who think about going into a reverse mortgage and how that's just not going to leave their, that's not going to leave them their home eventually. It's not going to, that's not going to be anything for anybody to pass along to the next generation. What are your thoughts? What's your opinion? Just like to hear that. Thought it might turn into a great rant. Talk with you later. Bye. Okay, before I answer, see what I mean? 
Uh, I started out the show and I said that a person didn't like rants, and what do we end the show with today? Uh, I didn't plan it this way. This is one of the calls. I, every Friday, I announce on Facebook, I'm screening calls. If you get a last-minute call in, I'll, I'll give you priority, and this one came in. Um, and what's he asking for a rant? And I can't give him a rant because I don't have a rant here. I, I just don't. Uh, I'm not going to tell you I love reverse mortgages. I'm not going to tell you I hate reverse mortgages. Uh, but I want to re- reinforce what I said at the beginning. This is a lesson for anybody trying to build a business out there, especially where you're building personal brand and online identity. Be authentic. I can't give this guy a rant today because I don't have one, and I can't not give the other person a rant when I'm really pissed off because that's who I am. All right. So uh, consider that with your own brand building, your own business building, being authentic and being who you are. Um, can't tell you how many emails I get from people that say, I wish you wouldn't cuss. Well, then listen to somebody that censors themselves. Um, on a reverse mortgage, let's start out with, well, what is a reverse mortgage? Before we say good, bad, and different on it. A reverse mortgage is a low-interest loan uh, for senior homeowners, and it uses the home's equ- equity as collateral. In other words, basically you're borrowing money against the house. It's almost like a second mortgage in a way, but it's not, or a home equity loan, but it's not, because that's way different legal terms and some protections built into it. The loan amount is a percentage of the home's value, depending by the age of the youngest homeowner. So if you have somebody living in a home 70 and 65, they're going to use the 65-year-old to base on how long you're going to live and what the house is going to be worth when you die, based on, it's kind of like looking at life insurance to amateurize that. The loan does not have to be repaid until the last surviving homeowner either permanently moves out of the property or passes away. So if the last surviving homeowner ends up in an old folks home and leaves the house, you got to repay the loan. If they just decide I'm going to get a condo in Florida uh, and get out of this house, uh, you got to repay the loan. You die, the loan has to be repaid at that point. At that time, the estate... Uh, which means if you die, whatever you've left behind, your heirs have 12 months to repay the loan. Uh, so it doesn't have to be repaid immediately upon death. You have 12 months to do that. And you can either do that by paying it out of cash or capital within the estate or out of pocket if you chose to, if you wanted to keep the house, uh, based on what the house is worth. If you, the, the loan was for $100,000 and you thought the house was worth $400,000, you wanted to keep it, effectively your heir would buy the house, a $400,000 house for hundred grand. Right, these are the positives of this thing. This is how it actually works. If somehow you ended up upside down, let's say that the homeowner had taken a $200,000 loan and the person dies and the heir goes to sell the house and the house is only worth, because the market crashed, $160,000, the bank takes the loss, not the estate. The estate is not liable for the $40,000. It's gone. Sorry, you lose. Not likely to happen because banks control this tightly. They try to look at the time frames and things like that and, and the interest owed and, and all of these other things to make sure that they don't loan too much money against the house. The ideal situation for this is someone who owns their house all outright and has no mortgage on it anymore. The old person has paid the house in full and owes zero dollars on it. The house is worth 200 grand and they want to sweeten their retirement and they take a hundred thousand dollar reverse mortgage. Uh, and over, let's say, 20 years at the end of their life, they get a payment every month. So instead of them making a mortgage payment, it's almost like they're getting a mortgage payment to themselves. Uh, so it's amateurized out over a life expectancy or a time frame agreed upon by the lender and the bank. 
then that person dies and the house is worth 200,000, maybe 250 by then. Uh, the estate liquidates the house, sells it for 250, 150 goes to the estate and a, you know, or, uh, $100,000 goes to the estate and the 150 pays back the loan. Do I think this is good or bad? I think that it can be bad. I think that a lot of old people are being tricked into doing this, and when that happens, I think the person tricking them into doing it should be strung up by their small toes and beaten with bamboo skewers until they plead for death, and then it should be given to them by being dropped into an ant bed and covered with honey and remaining strung up by their toes. Uh, if you trick an old person into making a bad financial decision, you rank up there with the scum of the earth, in my opinion. That said, I think that these things go with an awful lot of disclosure, and if you know what you're doing and you've decided this is what you want to do and you understand the loan, it's no worse than any other financial vehicle out there. It's up to you to decide what you want to do. As far as not leave anything behind for your heirs, is that important to you and is it important to them? With my wife's father-in-law, for instance, he's always worried, I'm not going to have much left when I go. I want you guys to have some. You know what we've told him? Spend it all. If you spend your last dollar on the day that you die, consider your life a success. You've worked for it. We've worked for what we have. We don't need it. If there's anything left behind, we'll try to honor you with it and do good by it. But spend it. Now, if, you're, if you've done well for yourself and your children have struggled their whole lives, it might be nice to leave something behind to them. You know? and, or if you've done really well, even if your children are okay, you might, and that's fine. But I don't see it as necessarily a horrible thing that someone dies and doesn't leave a huge inheritance to their heirs. I think it's personal choice, and I think it's lifestyle. What I don't want is the old person tricked into doing this, thinking they're still leaving behind something and leaving behind nothing. That is wrong. So that's how a reverse mortgage works. It's not good or bad. It's like looking at a baseball bat and to say if it's good or bad. Well, if I pick it up and I beat an intruder with it's coming into my house with it, who's trying to steal from me, and I bludgeon him to death when he was trying to get in and hurt my family, that's a good thing. If I take it out and hit baseballs with it, that's a good thing. If I go into 7-Eleven and beat a clerk with it and rob the cash register, that's bad. You could say the same thing about a gun, a knife, a car. Right? You say the same thing about a fixed annuity, right? or a variable annuity, or a life insurance type product. None of these products in of themselves are bad. What happens is that a person specializes in selling them, goes in and puts the person into a position where that's the only thing they have. They do 100% of one thing to the exclusion of all others, and the vehicle gets, and I mean financial vehicle here, gets abused. So, there you go. Sorry I can't give you a rant there. Now, if you send me a story about some old lady getting screwed over, and I know the person by name who did it, and I can point him out, I'll give you a rant, and maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll make that person ass clown of the week if we do that, and maybe somebody won't like the rant, and they can suck eggs or hit fast forward when they don't like the rant. But this is, this is the reality with a reverse mortgage. It's nothing but another financial type of loan. Uh, I don't like it because it's debt. All right, That's why I don't like it, because it's debt. And I think a lot of people don't realize that's what it is. It's debt. But in effect, in reality, as long as you appraise the house at the proper value, you appraise the appreciation of the house over the expected lifespan, it's almost like, 
get this, selling your house today, living in it with the profit today, and having somebody else take possession of it tomorrow. As a form of debt, it's probably the least um, threatening type of debt there could possibly be. You cannot be pushed out of your house. You cannot have the debt called due. Uh, if you run out of getting the money in from them, as long as the house is already paid for it and you just don't have the money anymore, which you wouldn't have had anyway, it's an old person deciding to spend their money today versus leaving it behind. That's a personal choice. I'm not going to rant on that. Uh, but what I do want you folks to take away from this, and as I close the show up today, I want you to understand is that in any type of financial vehicle, uh, any type of investment, loan, uh, please know the facts about it before you make a decision to do it and enter into it or to exclude it as an option. As much as I don't like the fact that it's debt, as much as I really think that you should try to leave something behind for your heirs, if I've got an 85-year-old lady sitting in a paid-for house with no debt, but she's living on $1,300 of Social Security, and she's barely getting by at that, and I can put $700 in her hand every month for the next 10 or 15 years of her life, and she dies and that house is then worth nothing, but instead of selling it today and putting her into uh, a condo or an old folks home or someone she, somewhere she doesn't want to go, she stays in her house in that scenario, I think it actually can be a very good thing. Just all parties need to be informed about what they're doing. Please be informed about what you're doing in life. Please be informed about your spirituality from that question that we had today. And be informed about all the decisions that you make, whether they're investing in land or property. Sorry about the background noise. The dog just flipped the over out there. I don't know if you guys heard that or not. Uh, but with that, I will wrap up. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living